0: All right, please take out your Bibles, Titus chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 8 this morning. Titus 3, 8 to 11, this morning, the title's kind of lengthy. Here's the title of the sermon, The Church's Task, Insist on the Gospel and its Fruits, Avoid worthless distractions and reject divisive people. The church's task insist on the gospel and its fruits. Avoid worthless distractions, reject divisive people. So now you have the whole outline of the whole sermon. You're ready to go. Uh, because our text this morning in Titus 3, it, it raises important questions for us. is What do we do with our time as God's people, as the church? What do we do with our time? What is the church for? Where should we be focused? What things are distractions? What things should we be ignoring? What things should we be giving ourselves to? And they're crucial questions, really, they're important questions for the church to have clear answers on, so that we don't give ourselves to um, side quests, so that we stay on the mission, so that we stay focused. We wanna have clear answers so that we give ourselves to everything that's excellent and profitable, and we don't spin our wheels or waste our time. And it's always a good time to reassess this question as a church, to make sure that we are grounded and centered where we need to be, that we are focused where we need to be because we are a distractible people. We have lots of distractions waved in front of us all the time, and so we should regularly listen to exhortations like the one in our passage today, re-examine our life together and ask, are we fixed on the main thing? So let's read Titus 3. 8 to 11 this morning, and get God's direction. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, Dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Amen. So we're nearing the end of Titus here. It's happening quick. The plan is next to go on to Leviticus. So, all right, thank you for that. Uh, Raise your hand if you've been through a sermon series on Leviticus. All right, four, nice. That's five. There's a few more than I expected. I've never heard anyone preach through Leviticus. I'm excited about it um, and have been studying a bunch on the big picture. I'm actually quite intimidated by Leviticus, so pray for me. Uh, as I prepare for that. But we're looking forward to it. The more I read on it, the more excited I get. There are uh, riches there for us. Uh, and I know there are, and that's why I've set myself to preach it. But there's also some kind of complexity, some obsc- seeming obscurity. And so uh, you'll know, be praying for me to to mine that out well. But we're rounding the corner on the end of Titus. just wanted you to know Leviticus is coming. Uh, and you can be, you know, reading about that and thinking about that as we approach it. But this morning we're wrapping up in Titus. And as Paul's starting to wrap up the letter to Titus, he's just kind of zeroing in on what the church is to do, what the church is for, what the church should avoid, and how the church should deal with division. But he begins by zeroing in on what the church's focus should be on. And that, in that he tells Titus to insist on the gospel And its fruits. Insist on the gospel and its fruits. That's in verse 8. He starts by telling Titus what to insist on, where the emphasis of his ministry should be, and what this is valuable for. So, what does Paul tell Titus to insist on? Let's look at verse 8 again. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who've believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So he starts with two statements. The first, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So what's the trustworthy statement? It's worth noting that Paul has four of these across his letters. They're in the pastoral epistles, these letters that he's writing to pastors, and he has these trustworthy sayings. He's got four of them, and this is one of them. I've said before that my grandpa was a man who abounded in sayings. My grandpa loved to have these little pithy short sayings that he would always say in the same instance, and it was just kind of his little faithful saying that he would pass on. And my grandpa's sayings were quite colorful, and he would repeat them in situations, and they would stick in your head, and they often come to my mind still to this day. Now, Paul was like that. Paul was a man who had Sayings. He has these faithful sayings, these things that he would repeat, and they might have been sayings even from the church more broadly that he would repeatedly bring up and say in order to stick them in the minds of the people of God. They help us to stay fixed on what's important. So it's worth looking at the four faithful sayings really briefly, because they demonstrate this common theme in Paul's emphasis. And so as Paul is wrapping up and zeroing us in on the emphasis of the church, we can see a theme across these faithful sayings that he has, and it'll help us to see what he wants the church focused on. It can be a little bit hard to tell the bounds of the faithful sayings because of how he he just weaves them through his thought, but this is my best attempt. Different people kind of draw the bounds of these faithful sayings a little bit differently, but here's what I think they are. First Timothy 1 15, he says, the saying is trustworthy. So there it is, another one of the trustworthy sayings and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom, of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Foremost here in the context talking about most prominent because he's talking about how he was the chief, the most public of sinners displaying his sin most prominently and most publicly. And so Christ showed mercy on him as the most public and prominent sinner and persecutor of the church to show his mercy. The next one's in 1 Timothy 4, 8 and 9. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. You're starting to see a theme here. The next one is in 2 Timothy two eleven to 13. It says, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. And then lastly here, Titus 3, 3 to 8. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, And renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who've believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So those are the four faithful sayings of Paul. What are they all about? salvation salvation is really the key word even that just comes up over and over and over again they're all about god's salvation of us in christ jesus i mean because paul says like these are faithful sayings worthy of all acceptance these are prime candidates for memory verses for scriptural memory anybody want to memorize these together let me know if you're interested uh Let's memorize these together. Anybody who wants, we'll put together a little group. We can work on them together and just commit these faithful sayings to our hearts and to our minds, and that will help us to remain centered on what is of first importance. They're all focused on the saving work of Christ the righteous, and the righteousness that that work produces in us, and that's right on theme here in Titus. Titus. So we said that Paul starts this passage in Titus with two things that he really wants Titus to emphasize. One is the faithful saying, and the other is an exhortation to insist on these things. Verse eight, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So what are the these things? I don't think that the these things is exactly the same as the faithful saying, and I'll show you why. First, Paul seems to distinguish them a little bit in the verse itself. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. The saying, singular, is trustworthy. And then I want you to insist on these things, plural. So I think it involves the saying and also some more. So what are the these things? This is really important. As we ask, what's the central emphasis of the church? What are the these things that Paul wants Titus insisting on in the life of the church? And it's similar to a question we asked last Sunday, because Titus 2.15 includes the same phrase, declare these things. You go back to 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Now he's picking up again, insist on these things. So what are the these things? Well, if we notice back in 2.15 where it says declare these things, the word for declare is the same word translated teach in chapter 2, verse 1 where he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine or declare what accords with sound doctrine. So I take it that the these things involves all the stuff he's been talking about in chapters two and three. Let's follow the reasoning. Two, chap, Titus 2, one, as for you, teach or declare what accords with sound doctrine. Then he goes on to outline all these things. In two fifteen. declare these things. The same things he said, declare what accords with sound doctrine, declare these things. And now picked back up in our passage today, 3 eight. the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. It's all the stuff of chapters 2 and 3. That's Calvin's take. He says, he includes all the instructions which he formerly gave concerning the duty of every person and the desire of leading a religious and holy life. The things that accord with sound doctrine and the central doctrines they accord with. The gospel and its fruits salvation and godly living sound doctrine and what accords with sound doctrine the gospel and its fruits and i think the rest of verse 8 confirms that we're understanding it rightly too as it gives the result of insisting on these things so that those who have believed in god may be careful to devote themselves to good works when you when titus insists on the gospel and the good works that it produces in the lives of people the result will be that those who've believed in God, they've been saved, may be careful to devote themselves to the good works. So Paul calls Titus to insist on the gospel and its fruits in life. That is the center of the emphasis of the church. These things are not merely to be suggested or hinted at. They're not to be remembered from time to time. He tells him to insist on these things. Like he said earlier, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And when the church insists on these things, the result is that believers are careful to devote themselves to good works. God's free grace that justifies us apart from works does not lead to lawlessness, and must not lead to lawlessness in the life of his people. Rather, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God accounts us as righteous before him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this grace causes us to be zealous for good works. This has been the theme of Titus. So how do you grow in righteous living? How do you become more holy? How do you become more given over to righteousness like we're called to? How can you have victory over sin and temptation and walk in purity and holiness and righteousness? How do you do it? First, by hearing with faith. This is the logic of Titus. First, by hearing with faith. It's the same thing Paul says in Galatians 3, 2-6. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So what about you? How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Was it because you got really serious about the commands of God and you started keeping them so perfectly and so thoroughly and so well that God said, now there's a guy who's really getting after it. I'm gonna to decide to give him my Holy Spirit and salvation. No, yeah, thank you. <laughs> of course not. How did you receive the Spirit? By works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you hear the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus that says that Christ died for sinners and you thought, That's me. I'm a sinner and I need to be saved because I'm not keeping the law, because I'm not obeying the way I should, because I'm enslaved to my sin and I'm trapped in it and I can't get out. And then you heard the good news that God saves sinners in Christ Jesus. And you heard with faith and you responded by faith and you believed and you called on the name of the Lord, Jesus, save me a sinner. And he came and saved you and forgave all your sins and gave you his Holy Spirit and gave you a new heart. That's the way of salvation. That's the only way that we receive the Spirit of God, the salvation of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel. So Paul reminded the Galatians, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer is clear, by hearing with faith. But then he says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness? You received the Spirit by hearing with faith. You heard the promise of Christ, and you believed, and you were saved. And God did miraculous things in your heart didn't he? And in your life, he called you back from the dead. He gave you new life and a new heart. He forgave you of all your sins. He worked miracles in your heart and in your life by his Holy Spirit, according to his promise. So how will you then be perfected in holiness? Now will you turn back to the flesh and think, okay, I got the spirit by the miraculous work of God, but now I'm going to go back to the flesh, and I'm really going to get it done. Paul says, how foolish is that? The same way you receive the Spirit is the same way you grow in grace. It's the same way you're perfected in holiness by hearing with faith. You hear the promise, and you believe it. Our fundamental fight in the Christian life is a fight of faith. Faith in God's promise, looking to Christ to do what we've never been able to do, seeking the power of the Holy Spirit to work in us, to grant us victory as we strive for it in the strength that he supplies. If you don't know how to battle against sin and temptation in this way, by means of faith in the promise of God, don't stop pursuing it until you learn it know how to fight your sin by faith in the promise. The same way you received by hearing with faith is the same way you grow in the Christian life. And if you need guidance in it, meditate on Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is a guide on how you believe the promises of God, you hear them with faith, and you gain freedom to walk in righteousness. Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus because sin no longer has dominion over you. And when you believe that promise in the face of struggle, in the face of temptation, because your temptation comes and tells you, I own you. You will do what I said. You will sin. You have to sin. You know you're going to sin. You know you're going to give way. But when you respond back to that lie by saying, I reckon myself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, and I am no longer a slave to sin because I am no, because, um, what does it say? Because you're no longer under law but under grace, sin will have no dominion over you and you battle by faith in those promises, you will find that you walk in glorious freedom. And isn't it right there in Titus 3.8? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Your battle is first and foremost a battle of believing God's word. Now let me address one pitfall here before we move on. Sometimes we'll hear that power comes by hearing with faith, and it does. That's what Paul says in Galatians. Did you begin by hearing with faith and you're gonna be perfected in the flesh? We'll hear that power comes by hearing with faith and then we'll conclude that we don't need to strive or fight with sin. We conclude that means I just sit around and wait for God to do something, right? But notice what Paul tells Titus. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is no quietism. This is no let go and let God. We believe the promises of God that he has forgiven us and that he's given us new hearts and the Holy Spirit so that we're able to keep his commandments. And then, believing that, we are careful to devote ourselves to good works. We do strain ahead in the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, and we do it in the strength that he supplies as we hear with faith the power of the Holy Spirit, which is ours by faith. So what is the emphasis of the church and ministry? Faith in the gospel and devotion to good works. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works and make sure that your idea of good works here is shaped by the Bible. Let me summarize the content and sphere of good works that Paul's been laying out to Titus that he's summarizing by these things. Let's just scan chapters 2 and 3 again, because they are the these things that are to be insisted on in the life of the church. First, older men being honorable examples of sound faith and endurance with dignity, love, and self-control. Then older women being reverent and not slanderers or slaves to much wine, but rather teaching the younger women. Younger women loving their husbands and children, pure, kind, submissive, and giving their energy to managing godly households. Younger men being self-controlled. Pastors being a model of good works and sound teaching workers being submissive and well-pleasing without arguing or stealing, and all of us doing this because the grace of God has come to us in Christ Jesus, bringing salvation and training us to pursue godliness with zeal and waiting on the hope of the life to come in the return of Christ. And then pastors exhorting and rebuking with all authority and Christians being submissive and obedient kind and gentle, remembering who we once were in our sin and how much Christ has done to save us and exalt us in him through his gracious salvation and washing with the Holy Spirit. That's chapters two and three. That's the these things that Titus is to insist on in the life of the church. Again, we could summarize this as the gospel applied out into every area of life. That's our aim here at Gospel Church. Rooted and grounded in this glorious gospel of the salvation of God in Christ Jesus, our eyes fixed on the heavenly realities brought to us in Jesus, and bringing those glorious heavenly realities out into our homes and lives and work and church in everyday living, adorning the gospel with normal lives of obedience to Christ Jesus. These things Paul says, are to be insisted on. And he says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. That's the end of verse 8. These things are excellent and profitable for people. These things, the gospel worked out into every area of your life, are good, lovely, beautiful, upright, praiseworthy, noble, and virtuous. And they're profitable. They're beneficial, they're advantageous, they're valuable, they're practical in your daily life. For real people, in real time, in your actual day-to-day life, these things are profitable and valuable and good. All that reminds me of our mission that Jesus gave us, our focus and emphasis from our Lord himself. When he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Baptizing and teaching everything Jesus commanded. The gospel and its fruits. All of Christ for all of life. This is the focus of the church. And while we focus on these things and we always return to these things, these are the center of what we are about as a church. While we focus on these things, we should take note of common things that would come and try to distract us from the things that we're supposed to be centered on, the things we're supposed to be focused in on. And that's where Paul goes next in verse nine. Avoid worthless distractions. He says, but avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Notice that the previous things are excellent and profitable. These things are unprofitable and worthless. They're the opposite of what we're supposed to be focused on. Avoid worthless distractions. We should avoid anything that hinders us from our mission or gives us mission drift from where our focus as the people of God must be. I don't think Paul's list here is meant to be exhaustive of anything that could possibly distract the church, but God's word is full of wisdom for all ages, and we should take note of the specific things he warns us about here as things that can distract us from the mission of the church. First, avoid foolish controversies. He doesn't say avoid controversies, but he says avoid foolish controversies. In advancing the gospel into all of life, we will meet opposition and controversy. We will have debates and controversies that arise, but they should be over issues of substance. There will be controversies over the truth of the gospel, over the lordship of Christ. Those are unavoidable, but we should avoid foolish controversies. So what are some examples today of foolish controversies that distract us? I think there's lots of them and I'm sure there's more than I'll list. But the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about foolish controversies, just empty controversies that distract people's minds, we can think about the fact that popular culture today just literally runs on controversy because we need a little controversy. It feels so empty without me. Cultural idols invent controversies in order to drive attention to themselves. This is a well-known tactic of how you become popular in our culture today is by inventing controversies, and then that draws people's attention. Did you hear so-and-so? Is Pitt against so-and-so? No, and I don't care. (laughs) But it's salacious and people love to follow it, but it's a waste of our time, okay? That's not what we as the church should be about, is did you hear the latest controversy? No, thank the Lord I didn't. But maybe that's real broad. What other kind of foolish controversies might distract us and capture our minds? I think conspiracy theories can fall into this category, especially the really far out ones. I mean, we really do live in a time where kings of the earth are conspiring together against the Lord and against his anointed. It's hard to be surprised by anything these days. But there is kind of an obsessive fixation on the farthest out theories of the internet that can be a real distraction from the gospel and real life obedience? Have you seen people fall into this trap where it's a constant kind of hunger and searching for the latest, farthest out conspiracy to latch onto and obsess on? I think those are controversies that can become foolish and distract us from our main purpose as the church, which is the salvation of God and obedience worked out in all of life. Um, Or within the church more specifically, what foolish controversies do we see? We see battles over doctrine, inerrancy, homosexuality, feminism, wokeness, Standing against these kind of things is not foolish controversy, but giving way to them is giving way to foolish controversies. It's pretty clear what the Bible says about these things. And so getting all caught up in those battles and being swept away by them is a distraction for the church. Rather, we just need to hold fast to the word and not get carried away by every false teaching that comes along. Contemporary versus traditional music is a foolish thing to divide over, isn't it? How many churches are divided up, even their their worship divides up into contemporary music or traditional music, and the church divides. What a foolish controversy. How about the boomers versus millennials, Gen X, Gen Z, blah, 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 whatever other name they come up with, to group us into little groups and pit us against one another. What a foolish controversy. Just distracts us from what we're supposed to be doing. Or you can't eat or drink this. You have to work out in this way. You have to put your kid on this kind of sleep schedule, et cetera, right? What kinds of controversies do we whip up to get ourselves distracted as the people of God from the main thing that God has called us to? Divisive distractions within the body of Christ. So Paul tells us to avoid foolish controversies. I'm sure you could think of a hundred more. But we don't need to get caught up on side quests. We need to focus on the main things of the gospel and obedience in all of life. All right, the second thing that's a distraction for the church from the main mission is genealogies. This is avoid genealogies. This is kind of strange, okay? Are you distracted from the mission of the church by genealogies yourself? Not all genealogies are bad. The Bible often lists them to mark God's faithfulness. The New Testament begins with a lengthy genealogy. So again, genealogies as a thing are not bad. So what's Paul warning about? Where do we see genealogies dividing the church today? Well, there are a few examples. First, you might know that the Roman Catholic Church claims that they have an authority that's equal to the Bible based on a genealogy of popes that goes all the way back to Peter that's pretty significant. That's a pretty significant genealogical controversy where they're like, you guys don't have any authority. You can't understand the Bible. You're wrong because you don't have this unbroken genealogy that traces back to the apostle Peter. But to claim that you have authority and godliness simply because of who your ancestors were, apart from your actually carrying on faithfulness, is a foolish waste of time. And Roman Catholicism is pretty far from us. Most of us are probably not tempted to be Roman Catholics, but you might know that there's a whole sect of Baptists who do something similar, and they're called Landmark Baptists. They usually have landmark in their name. So there's Landmark Baptists, and they claim that they have a direct line that they can trace back to the New Testament, and that anyone that doesn't follow their specific genealogy of people going back to the New Testament, and and actually a, a, a line of baptisms that go from one person to the next are not actually real Christians. That's a divisive doctrine that's caused lots of schisms in our own denomination over the years. The SBC had to run them off about 100 years ago because they were focused on genealogies and obsessing on this thing and losing the gospel. All right, one more, I think, application of this one today where we might be tempted to lose the the script because of genealogies. Calvin points out on this, On this line in Titus, he talks about people who are obsessed with race, mentioning those who seize on the lineage of races and trifles of that nature with which they weary themselves without advantage. I wonder if we see anyone obsessing on lineages of race today and making that the main central focus of the church. So we can become distracted from foolish controversies or genealogies, obsessing on who are you and who are your ancestors and who are your people and that we don't like you because of that or we do like you because of that or we want you or we don't want you or whatever it is, just obsessing on these genealogies of where did you come from and what's your lineage rather than focusing on the gospel of Jesus Christ and righteousness played out in life. The next thing that can get us off script are dissensions. So he says avoid foolish controversies, genealogies or dissensions. Dissensions are quarrels about opinions. That's pretty similar to foolish controversies, but maybe with a more individual expression where we're taking our opinion and driving it over each other. Paul says in Romans 13, 1, welcome the one who's weak in faith, but not to quarrel over opinions. I really think this one is a big temptation for churches that love the truth and sound doctrine and hold the line because we have to contend for the truth of Scripture against so much opposition, and so we're used to having, holding a really hard line on the truth and refusing to budge, but then we need to have a really hard line in our minds between contending for what the Scripture actually says versus contending for our own opinions. You can't just become a person who contends hard for whatever you think all the time because your opinions are not law. So it's, we have to be especially careful of this that we don't become a, a people overcome with dissensions, that we hold the line on God's truth and refuse to budge, but then when it, when it comes down to who should win the game this afternoon, the 49ers or the Lions, we all know who it should be. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, just kidding, right? Well, when it comes to our own opinions, you know it's fun to have an opinion, but we don't push those on one another as law. We contend for what the Scripture says, but when it comes to our own opinions, we hold them loosely. Your opinions are not binding on other people. Be very careful of judging your brother or quarreling with him about something that you don't clearly find laid out in Scripture. Calvin warns of hardihood in affirming about things that are uncertain, which unavoidably leads to debates. Hardihood in affirming about things that are uncertain. And when there is a disagreement about whether something really is in Scripture or not, the only way forward is to carefully look at the Scripture and see. We should be guided by Scripture in every area of life, seeking its direction on how we think and what we do in all of life. So, we are not among those who count doctrine as divisive or quarrelsome, as some do. We're not among those who refuse to ask hard questions about what the Bible says on controversial things like politics and family but we need to be constantly letting Scripture be our guide, following Scripture's commands and seeking God's instruction for all of life without giving way to quarreling over opinions or contending too strongly for questionable applications of biblical principles. And this is a hard task. This is a hard task for us, and it's a hard task for me as a preacher because I'm called by God to apply his word into all of life with authority and to exhort in that, right? And I, and I strive to be really careful to walk the line of not failing to apply the word out into some of the corners where I know it's controversial and people won't like it, and yet not overstating applications and principles that are uncertain or that are just my own opinion. And so I ask that you would pray for me in this because this is a hard line to walk well, right? We don't wanna hold back from applying the word everywhere, but neither do we want to take our own opinions and our own ideas and drive them over each other's consciences. So pray for me as I teach, and as I labor to do that week in and week out faithfully. I think for years I held back in clearly spelling out applications of the Scripture into certain corners for fear of over-applying, but I've come to see a degree of cowardice in that. And in the church at large, I've seen the enemy bearing fruit in some of those corners. Like where the church at large just kind of held back from a few of the corners and thought we can kind of maintain more unity if we don't drive the scriptures too far. We'll just hold back from applications quite as far as the scripture goes and just let people figure it out themselves. Well, then we see some mold and some nasty stuff growing in those corners, right? We see darkness thriving in those corners because we've kind of held back from shining the light into them. And so I'm striving to walk that line more boldly and precisely. But may God help me from not holding back and shining the light into every corner and yet not overapplying where the Bible doesn't clearly speak. So we must avoid dissensions, foolish controversies, genealogies, and dissensions, quarreling over opinions. Next, he tells us to avoid quarrels about the law. The New Testament church was dealing with all sorts of issues of the application of the Old Covenant law to New Covenant believers as groups like the Circumcision Party wanted to demand that Gentiles be circumcised and keep all the Old Covenant regulations which had been fulfilled in Christ. Now, all of Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, and that includes Old Testament Scriptures. They're profitable, but that instruction and training is in learning principles of justice and goodness, not going to the Old Testament as our covenant. So be careful of getting caught up in movements in the church that obsess and focus on keeping Old Covenant laws, dietary restrictions, Old Covenant festivals, etc. That's to lose the script. That's to miss the point of the New Covenant and the call of the church in the gospel. We see it clearly in the Messianic movement today, which divides the church over quarrels about the law. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. It's verse 9. The doctrines and their applications to all of life are excellent and profitable, but these things are worthless and unprofitable. They will not benefit the church. They will not make us better. They will not improve your holiness or honor God, and so we avoid them. Calvin regularly warns about this, and here he says, In doctrine, therefore, we should always have regard to usefulness, so that everything that does not contribute to godliness shall be held in no estimation. Long-winded, pietistic, deep, self-indulgent ramblings and speculations are unprofitable. And they're not what theology and doctrine are all about. These things are excellent and profitable for people. True doctrine, profit people. They do good. They bear fruit in our lives. But foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law do not produce profitable growth in grace. So we know what the focus of the church is. The focus of the church is the gospel and its fruits of righteous living in all of life. We know it to avoid worthless distractions. And now finally we have instruction about what to do about people who try to use worthless distractions to divide the church. And that brings us to verses 10 and 11, where we are to reject divisive people. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So what do we do with people who come to the church and are divisive? What do we do with people in the church who pit us against one another? Could be by means of any of the things we just talked through, or just for bad doctrine in general. Remember earlier in the letter when Paul warned, uh, he said that the, the Elders need to be able to teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it because those who were bringing in bad doctrine were upsetting entire households by teaching what they ought not to teach. So when people come in and they do the kinds of things we've seen here or they teach bad doctrine and advance unhealthy doctrines that turn households upside down, they are to be opposed. They are to be rejected and first by the elders of the church. Paul describes these Divisive people, people who stir up division in Romans 16 this way. He says, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, same thing that Titus, Paul tells Titus. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but by their own appetites and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. People bring different doctrines than the apostolic doctrine Those are the divisive people, Paul says. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Paul lays the blame of division at the feet of those who teach unbiblical doctrine. It's not divisive to contend for sound doctrine. It's divisive to bring unsound doctrine into the church. Those are the dividers. And they work by smooth talk and flattery. So don't be among the naive caught by flattery and smooth speech, but avoid such people in person or online or in books or wherever you find them. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, Paul says. So the church has a really clear path in dealing with divisive people. Warn them once, warn them again, and then reject them or have nothing to do with them. The instruction is directly here for Titus, a church leader. and We saw that was a role of elders was to rebuke those who contradict sound teaching. So we should keep context in mind. But I think we all have some responsibility to do this. We all have some responsibility to hear sound doctrine and to reject unhealthy teaching. But these kind of people, divisive people, will come into the church. They will do it often and regularly. They have often and regularly done this here at Gospel Church and we follow this instruction, and these kinds of people end up leaving because they see that they don't have a path forward here. Because we have instruction from the Bible to deal with this so that the church is not torn apart by divisive people. One reason people like this often don't last long at Gospel Church is because we follow the direction at the beginning of Titus about the qualification of leaders. Over the years, we will regularly have people come around to Gospel Church want to meet with one of the leaders, let us know about all their spiritual qualifications, and then let us know that they're ready to be an elder and a leader at Gospel Church. And after being here for a week or two, they're ready for us to put them up front and let them teach. But we don't do that. And so what we do is we tell them, well, we're glad you're here. God bless you, we're glad you have a gift and a desire to teach, but we don't really know you. And here's our process for becoming a leader. We don't just put people up into leadership immediately. The Bible commands us not to lay hands hastily on anyone. So we lay out the plan. You should come here and join the church and become a member and let us get to know you for a few years so that we know your character. And then we may assess you for teaching and leadership uh, once we as a congregation get to know you over time because character takes time to unfold but people then will get mad and resist when they can't find a way through it and they leave. People who just wanna be thrust right up front and bring in divisive teaching. But lots of churches who are just hungry for leaders, as we all are, we want more leaders, that churches will just rush people into positions of leadership and then you end up making a pathway for divisive people to come in and bring other teaching and then they do so and then the church gets torn apart and torn in different directions and it causes damage and it leads to problems. By when somebody comes in and they're teaching other doctrine or causing foolish controversies or obsessing on genealogies or creating dissensions on their own opinions or quarreling about the law, we warn them to stop. And if they continue to do it, we warn them again because we are a gracious people, because we're a welcoming people. We want people to come in and we're ready to teach them and we're ready to instruct them. So if people come in and they're confused about doctrine, we're happy to explain sound doctrine to them and teach sound doctrine to them But if we warn them to stop teaching bad doctrine and they continue doing it, then we warn them again to stop teaching bad doctrine or dividing the church and they continue to do it, then we are to reject them. We are to run them off. They're bad actors. They are agents of the enemy coming in to dismantle and divide the flock which Jesus purchased with his life. And Jesus warned us about this. He said, they will arise from among you. Fierce wolves seeking to devour the sheep. And so it's part of our responsibility as the church to have an eye out for something like that and to follow the instruction of the scripture so that they get nowhere. Now, there is a tendency for God's people to continue to try to reason or argue with such a divisive person. But divisive people love that. Divisive people love to get you into a quarrel and to stretch you out as long as you're willing to go. They love to burn up your time and your energy all day long, forever. Forever. So when you become aware that you're dealing with a divisive person, a person who's not really wanting to listen or engage the truth or hear the truth, but they're just constantly quarreling and bouncing from one objection to the next, warn them and warn them again and then have nothing to do with them. Calvin's clearly dealt with these people regularly as we have, and he writes this, such is the cunning of Satan that by the impudent talkativeness of such divisive men He entangles good and faithful pastors so as to draw them away from diligence and teaching. We must therefore beware lest we become engaged in quarrelsome disputes, for we shall never have leisure to devote our labors to the Lord's flock, and contentious men will never cease to annoy us. There are people who just want to attack, divide, bring up false doctrines, lay them at at your feet, Uh, argue about this, argue about that, and when they come, we need to know how to identify them, lovingly receive them, warn them gently and kindly, give them another chance, warn them gently and kindly again. And I take it if they persist after the second warning, that's when we say, it's time for you to move along. It's important that we are aware that not everyone who comes to the church comes with good intention or honest need. Some people come to the church with, good intention and honest need, and we are happy to serve them. Some people come who are warped, perversed, or turned inside out. That's what he says in verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. We have to have discernment as the people of God. Absolutely, we are welcoming up front, and that's why we receive the people, and if they're divisive, we warn them and give them another chance, and we warn them again and give them another chance because we are a welcoming people, and we make room for people, but we have to be discerning, and we can't be naive and foolish thinking that there are no bad actors coming at the church when the Bible constantly warns us that there are. Their own actions judge and condemn them. He says, knowing that, so we have nothing to do with them knowing Why do we have nothing to do with them? Because we know that such a person, a person who's just divisive, 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 we know that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. His own actions actions judge him. His own actions condemn him. We're called to be a gracious people, a hospitable people, a welcoming people, a people who love the stranger. And yet we're not called to be foolish, reckless, Naive or gullible people who make room for those who come in with nefarious intentions. And so when people show themselves plainly to be divisive in the church again and again and yet again, then we run them off because the Lord of mercy told us to right here. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So we know what to do as the Church of Christ. We know how to stay on track. We know what our focus is. It's the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ and righteous works carried out into all of life. We insist on the gospel and its fruits in all things, and we avoid worthless distractions, and we reject divisive people. We stay focused on the heart of the message that we were sinners, saved by grace in Christ Jesus, washed by the Holy Spirit so that we could be a people zealous to honor God with good works in every area of real, normal life. We follow his message. We live in what accords with sound doctrine. We proclaim this gospel to others and call them to faith in Christ and the resulting lives of obedience and all things to the glory of God. This is our aim. And God helping us We will not get distracted off of that glorious center. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your plain and clear instruction to us, your church. Thank you that you guide us carefully into what we should be about, into what we should insist on, into what we should be focused on. Thank you, Father, for being a good father and for warning us of common distractions that will distract us off of the center and off of what is profitable and good for us. God, you are such a loving father. You are such a good father who guides and shepherds us so carefully and watches over your church. And Father, thank you for warnings about bad actors, about divisive people who would come and destroy your flock. And so, Father, we ask that you would grant us rich discernment. Lord, we ask first that we would be focused on the gospel and its fruits in the life of the church now and until the day that Christ returns. Father, let gospel church never drift away into distractions. Lord, let us not get caught up in needless quarrels and genealogies and any of the things that you warn us about. And Father, also, we pray that you would protect us from wolves, We pray that you would protect us from bad actors, from those who would come into the church to try to divide and sow discord and work evil purposes. But we pray in Christ Jesus that you would grant us discernment, that you would grant especially the leaders discernment as we shepherd the flock and and lead the front line of that. But Father, we, we pray that all of us, that we would be very, very gracious, that we would be very generous, very welcoming. And yet we would know when there's a divisive person that we would warn them Graciously, We would warn them again graciously, but then we would know when it's time to have nothing to do with them for the good of your flock and the glory of your name. Father, thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit and your word to guide us in these things. And we trust that you will continue to guide us in Jesus' name.